BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. Good to see you again. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. And thanks to so many of you for subscribing to the podcast. Please encourage your friends to do the same. Now, like me, you're probably sick of watching the Republican Party's replay of 2016, watching one by one as a dozen or more spineless candidates throw in the towel and endorse a man who is totally unfit to be president of the United States, far more so in 2024 than he was back in 2016. It would be a disaster for the country were Donald Trump ever to get back in the Oval Office But far more than that, a disaster for the entire world. So we thought it was important today to step back and look at the global challenges facing the United States today to underscore how important it is to stay the course with the steady leadership of Joe Biden and to shift our attention away from the campaign trail and onto what's at stake around the globe in the 2024 election we turn once again to our guide on foreign policy, foreign affairs expert, and former head of the Plowshares Fund, Joe Cirincioni, who is also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Joe Cirincioni, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Good to talk to you again. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me on. All right. So, Joe, it has been a little over three months, three months and a couple of weeks, since uh, Hamas attacked Israel, killing 1,200 Israelis. Now, uh, all of this time later, Gaza is basically leveled. 25,000 Palestinians have been killed. When is this war going to be over? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, if, if it was up to the prime minister of Israel, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, the war would go on for at least another year. That's what he says. It will go on until total victory. And by that, he means the complete dismantlement of Hamas. But there are signs growing in, in inside Israel, uh, with the inside the Israeli-U.S. relationship, that the Israeli public, Israeli leaders, and certainly the Biden administration is losing patience with Netanyahu's conduct of the war and want to bring this to an end sooner. Now, I've, I've talked to senior administration officials back in uh, October and November, and they actually thought the war would have been ended by now. They, hmm. they thought this was going to be over by September by the end of December. I mean, how much can you destroy? How many times can you make the the rubble bounce? But it has not ended, which is tied perhaps more to Bibi Netanyahu's Netanyahu's political fortunes rather than the conduct of the war itself. So we we just don't know. Is there any any way that that, um, you believe those hostages will be released? Is, Is Netanyahu committed to getting them out? He doesn't appear to be. I mean, the, the, the 
we had, you remember, five days of, of a ceasefire. Yes. yes. And that was back in November. And we got about half the hostages, 105 of the hostages were released. But then Israel ended that and, and, and imposed an, an even more intense bombardment campaign in the Gaza war, tried to restrict the any aid going in. And they really seem to think that they could strangle Hamas. And Netanyahu keeps saying that the only way to get the hostages out is to increase the pressure. That that goes against all the evidence that we see. And increasingly, you're seeing in Israel a big divide over this. Uh, most recently, for example, one of Netanyahu's uh, members of his war cabinet, Gadi Essenkot, a uh, former chief of staff of the army, came out just in the last few days and broke with Netanyahu over this. He's saying it's time for a ceasefire. That's the only way we're going to get the hostages out. You see increasingly the families of hostages are taking Mm -hmm. a a similar Mm -hmm. line. The Israeli public seems to think we should prioritize the release of the hostages. So the the clock may be ticking on um, Netanyahu's strategy. Yeah. And what is his exit strategy? (laughs) Or does he have one? And then what happens when he gets to that point? Well, this is one of the great weaknesses of what Israel is doing right now. No one anywhere can tell you what the exit strategy is, what the day after looks like. If Israel were to stop fighting today, what happens? Does it stay in Gaza? Does it leave Gaza? Does it help bring about some sort of Palestinian governance of Gaza? No one knows. Netanyahu has not articulated a plan because he says that day is very far off. Because in his mind, they're going to keep fighting the war. There's going to be military operations in Gaza for the rest of this year. Reportedly, uh, in a conversation this week, the first time that the president, President Biden, has spoken to the prime minister in like a month, After that call, Biden said that he had pressed again that the ultimate solution is a Palestinian state, and he still said he held out some hope that that might be possible, even though Netanyahu has said no, 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 no freaking way. What's your take? I think Biden is trying to put a positive spin on this. Yeah. And, you know, maybe he's right, but I doubt it. Netanyahu has long opposed the establishment of a Palestinian state in practice, although in words he's nodded to it. He's said he's even said the words a Palestinian state or a Palestinian entity. But last Thursday, he for the first time, he really publicly, clearly broke with it. He said in the future, Israel needs security control of all the territories west of the Jordan. So from the river to the sea, Israel must control all of this, the West Bank, Gaza, etc. It, it was. It was. That is the settler vision. That is what the extreme right in Israel wants: a, a unitary Jewish Israeli state with no Palestinians at all, or whatever Palestinians remain have no rights. That's what it wants. That's what Netanyahu is uh, articulated. It was a very sharp break with past Israeli policy and certainly with the U.S. government, who's insisted from day one. You remember, you and I talked about Joe yes, Biden, how yes. well he handled the, the October 7th massacre, how quickly he went to Netanyahu's aid, Israel's aid, but how quickly he coupled support for Israel with the pursuit of a two-state solution and urged restraint upon Netanyahu. It appears that Biden's strategy has failed. There is no restraint. 
He has not gotten the hostages out, even though, as we say, 105 were released, but there's still 132 in, in, in the tunnels under Gaza. And he certainly has not helped articulate any kind of path towards a two-state solution. The reaction in the U.S. to Netanyahu's comments was swift from Democratic lawmakers you know, who, who, who denounced this, who warned that this was a, a real break with the U.S., that Netanyahu seems to be pursuing for his own domestic political agenda, and that the U.S. had to take the gloves off, that U.S. pressure has to increase on Netanyahu. So far, there's no sign that Joe Biden is doing that. He continues to try to spin this as, um, you know, a bump in the road. And one would assume putting a lot of pressure on privately, right? But not publicly. Well, but that that's what he's been doing for months now. And there's no indication whatsoever that that has worked. That is working. But, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, so are you saying, or should we kind of conclude, there will be no effort toward at least the solution of a Palestinian state, a two-state solution, as long as B.B. Netanyahu is in power? That's absolutely correct. As long as he's there, we're going to be deadlocked on this issue. Wow. Did you happen to see, Joe, uh, we all have so much in front of us. Uh, I'm, the, I'm surprised, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't get there yet, but I'm asking about David Remnick's profile of Bibi Netanyahu in the most recent New Yorker magazine. I, I did see that. It's a brilliant piece that really helps you go through the, the, the recent and even the distant history of this issue and of Netanyahu in particular. I thought it was devastating portrait of, of yeah. Netanyahu. For one thing, it does raise the question of, and this is a man, Netanyahu, who has always bragged about being ahead of the game. Nobody pulls anything over on him, man. He knows what's going on. And yet, apparently, either did not know or ignored what Hamas was up to. And at the same time, did know that uh, Hamas was getting millions of dollars every year from Qatar to build up their military power or whatever right. they were getting the money. Why didn't that, did he know and why, why didn't he do anything about it? It's hard to believe he didn't know. I mean, the, the very high level, um, uh, credible people in his own government were warning him of this, were warning him of the the activity they were seeing on the part of Hamas and how Hamas was looking at the, uh, the divisions in Israeli society. Remember, there had been hundreds, thousands of people demonstrating every weekend for, for, for months over, uh, to try to block Netanyahu's judicial coup, which, by the way, they succeeded in doing in recent court yep. rulings. Mm -hmm. and, and they th that, that, but that Hamas maybe saw this as a weakness, as a time to, to strike and that they were making preparations for it. Now, Netanyahu, it's understandable that, that in his mindset, in his worldview, he dismisses this because he had spent decades building up Hamas. This is yes. a little strange. But in his calculation, it was better that, that Hamas control Gaza, that they get money. He encouraged Qatar to give Hamas money because he thought this split the Palestinians. Hamas, of course, is the rival of the Palestinian Authority, the only legitimate representation of the Palestinian people in, in, in the West Bank. And, and he wanted to split it so he could go to his American partners who were insisting that he negotiate a two-state sol solution. He could say, who am I going to negotiate with? 
There is no unified Palestinian position. I, there's, there's nowhere to proceed. The, this road is a dead end. And that's exactly what he did for decades. And he thought Hamas was contained, that they were wedded to the, the money, that they were comfortable ruling Gaza and had no real revolutionary or liberation uh, vision. And he was proved terribly, terribly wrong in the horrific October 7th attack. So he was using Hamas as his counter to the Palestinian Authority, in effect, right? And it backfired on him. So can you blame Netanyahu for this war? Of course. And Israelis blame him for this war. Polls show that only 15% of Israelis want Netanyahu to continue after this war is over. Everybody acknowledges that, that the, the clock is ticking on his rule. When this war ends, Netanyahu end because they blame him for, one, completely mishandling the Palestinian um, uh, relationship, crisis, situation for decades, and for particular, for mishandling the intelligence and the Israeli response to this, starting with October 7th, when it took hours, even a full day, before IDF forces came to the rescue of those kibbutzim, of the people in the kibbutzim who were who were under attack by the, the, the Hamas terrorists. And then the war itself, you know, it, the, the, my... I, you know, Bill, that I have family in Israel. My yes, wife. Yes, we talked about that. Returned yes. a while back f- from visiting her her mother, who lives up near the more near the northern border. And while things are calm in Israel, while life is proceeding as normal, there is this constant dread of of what's coming next, and this sense of vulnerability. And in general, what you, what you hear from Israelis is that their sense of trust in the government and in their own military has been shattered. And while they support what the military is doing in Gaza, which is you know fearful, revengeful attacks, they 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 don't have any sense that this is going to work, that it's mm-hmm. actually going to solve the problem. And that's where Netanyahu is at. And so as soon as this war ends. The belief is that the Israeli public will elect an, a new leadership, a, a new set of, uh, of government leaders to try to turn the corner. That's one of the reasons Netanyahu has a personal interest in keeping this war going. I think it's helpful to think of Netanyahu like Donald Trump, a, meg- <laughs> a megalomaniac narcissist who considers his own interests first so not what, what's best for the nation, what, what's best for him, what will keep him in power, what will keep him out of jail. That's Bibi Netanyahu. Is there any way that he could be driven out of office before the end of the war? Well, people are trying. There hmm. is uh, just uh, on Monday, the labor government, the labor party, a, a much smaller party than it's ever been. They used to dominate Israeli politics. Now they're more on the fringe, but they introduced a, a resolution of uh, no confidence in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. And there are others who are talking about this. And the, the talk from Gadi Essenkot is part of that. You're seeing it now become a little more prevalent in the Israeli press and in the Israeli media uh, that they, we've lost confidence in Netanyahu. Can that translate into a vote of no confidence that topples the government? It, it, up until now, I would say the Israeli public didn't want that. They don't want another crisis in their government while the war is going on. But increasingly, they think, well, what else is going to be accomplished? How many more people do you have to kill? Are you, are you going to be able to defeat Hamas the way Netanyahu claims? And increasingly, the view is, well, no. 
we're not going to be able to defeat Hamas. Hamas will remain. It's time to end this war and come to some kind of deal. That's still a minority view, but it's Mm -hmm. growing. And Joe, you indicated earlier that President Biden's strategy of public support, private pressure, which has been his play for the last three months, is not working. What do you think Joe Biden should do now? Publicly break with Netanyahu? Call for a ceasefire? You know, I've talked to administration officials who have said we will never call for a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. But the, the best gambit for Biden right now, one that would fit with him personally, is to get another hostage deal and a, a suspension of hostilities. Mm-hmm. That would be the way to lead to a broader ceasefire. And he isn't, I know the, the government is in talks with Qatar, with Hamas, not US directly, but through Qatar and with Egypt to have this kind of deal, something that would pause the fighting, that would allow more humanitarian aid in, which Israel is still blocking. There's just a trickle of aid that's going in, a couple of hundred trucks a day rather than the 500 a day that are needed. And they would get the release of those recent hostages, that this is something the Israeli public could support. And that's the best way to bring Netanyahu kicking and screaming into a path that would eventually lead to the end of this war. Uh, me, I would start conditioning aid uh, to, mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. Netanyahu. I would start you know, saying no more artillery shells, no more bombs uh, for you until you agree to this deal. And I would be raising the specter that he that um, we could lose the vote in the Congress on Israeli aid. Remember, in October, when Biden first proposed $16 billion of aid, it looked like a slam dunk. It hasn't happened yet. For as you well know, you've covered this, the internal politics of the House, but support is slipping in the United States. In fact, sliding dramatically, I would say. So there's increasing opposition to that aid, certainly unconditional aid. And Biden could point this out to Netanyahu and other Israeli leaders. Okay, before we leave the Middle East, as important as it is, there are uh, a lot of concerns that this could end up, and been concerns for a while, this could end up in a wider war from two fronts, uh, or maybe three. Let's start with Hezbollah. Remnick, in his piece in The New Yorker, uh, I was surprised as he's saying that Hezbollah is actually stronger, better equipped militarily, a greater threat than Hamas ever was to Israel. Is Do you see it that way? And uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. There's no question about it. I mean, it's just one statistic where, where Hamas had has thousands of rockets or had thousands of rockets they could fire into Israel. We believe that Hezbollah has about 150,000, that they have tens of thousands of trained troops. They have elite commando units. They have cells dispersed throughout the Middle East. They have been in Lebanon in in power for, for, for decades now, have close ties or a ruling part of Lebanon. They're, they're a political party in Lebanon. No, these, this, is, this would be a very serious foe. As uh, Remnick, uh, I think, describes, there were some in Israel who wanted to go after Hezbollah. This is the far right again. They think this is, we need a final battle. We have to go attack Hezbollah before they attack us. They were talked out of it. 
but in part by the Biden administration, but also by some of their military leaders. But they're still itching. And you see that, that Israel still takes provocative acts on Lebanon, like a very heavy bombing on the outside of Beirut, the assassination of a Hamas leader in, in, inside Beirut just uh, two weeks ago, things that could provoke Hezbollah into a war. This is dangerous, but that's just one of the fronts. I mean, mm-hmm. our colleague Robin Wright, who's one of the most knowledgeable Middle East experts, had another article in New Yorker last week, just, and the title was How 10 Conflicts in the Middle East Could Merge Are Merging into One Big War, all fueled by the Israeli war in Gaza. And that's, that's with Hezbollah up there. That's with the d- dissent and, and fighting in the West Bank. Over 360 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank. Since October 7th, that's with the attacks of uh, by uh, Iran-linked militia groups in Syria on U.S. forces. We just had another attack a couple of days ago. That's attacks in Iraq on, mm-hmm. on, on U.S. forces by Iraq uh, militia. Again, just had attacks there. The U.S. retaliated. So, And, of course, there's other conflicts. Iran last week, I don't know if you noticed this, struck a base in Pakistan and back Pakistan struck back. So there are these conflicts. And, of course, the Houthis in the Red Sea, which is getting very serious. We used to talk about, you know, one U.S. strike against Houthi forces, three, four. We don't count them anymore. It's almost a daily occurrence that the U.S. forces are striking in Yemen. So all of these... uh, they have their own individual, you know, dynamics, but they're all fueled by the Israeli war in Gaza. So until you end that war, these the these other flames that continue to grow, and the the danger is that something happens that just spirals out of control. We haven't had a U.S. contractor or a soldier in Syria or Iraq killed yet, but if this goes on, we will. The U.S. will respond. What happens next? That's the kind of thing you're worried about. Same thing on uh, the border of Lebanon and Israel. One of these shells is going to cause mass casualties. One of these missiles is going to cause mass casualties. Israel will respond in force, and then we're off to the races. Joe, I'm I'm sitting here shaking, thinking of the consequences of that. I mean, it is... Very, very serious threat. Well, this has been the number one Biden priority. They had three priorities. Stop this from getting into a regional war, free the hostages and urge restraint upon Netanyahu. They failed on restraint. They failed. They 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 released only half the hostages, but they had succeeded in keeping it contained. That's now unraveling. All right. On that chilling point, let's take a quick break here and then come back and look at, believe it or not, some other areas of the world causing some concerns. It's not all just the Middle East, as important as as this is. Our guest again, uh, Joe Cirincioni, our own foreign policy guru and former head of the Plowshares Fund. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with Joe and look at some other hot spots in the world. Today's podcast brought to you by the members of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union under the leadership of President Mark Perrone. The UFCW, they're the people that we meet most often probably in our daily lives, a union members of, of a labor union. They're the ones who staff the big retail chains like Macy's and Nordstrom's, uh, our 
favorite grocery stores like Safeway or um, Stop and Shop, wherever. Uh, the meat and poultry plants across the country and our cannabis plants, chemical plants as well, all members of the UFCW. We thank them for their great work, thank them for their service for all of us, and thank them for their longtime support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at ufcw.org. You'll be surprised at how many different areas of the American labor force that they represent. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. back on today's podcast. Thank you for joining us again on the Bill Press Pod as we get away from the campaign trail to look at uh, global challenges facing the United States today. Uh, yeah, what impact 2024 might have on all of them or them on the race in 2024. And our guest again, Joe Sirincioni, former head of the Plowshares Fund, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, former advisor to the State Department, and the Bill Press Pod official foreign policy <laughs> guru, Joe Ukraine, we've talked a lot mm. about Ukraine, and you know, the attention has certainly shifted from there, but the war is far from over. What's the current status, and how important is it that the United States continue our assistance to Ukraine? It's absolutely vital that we continue our assistance, which is now swinging in the balance in, in the U.S. Congress. Ukraine is, I would say, desperate at this point for a, a firm commitment of U.S. aid. It's gotten such a commitment from the U.K., United Kingdom, just in recent months. It continues to be reassured by the leaders of the European Union, by NATO leaders itself. But that aid from the United States, $61 billion that the president requested, is absolutely vital to sustain Ukraine through the rest of this this year. The situation on the front is 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 not quiet. Russia is attacking every day in mass human wave assaults. They, they lose hundreds of soldiers every day in these assaults, but they keep making them. They are returning to their strategy of last year, bombarding Ukrainian cities with, with mass missile and drone attacks that attempt to overwhelm Ukrainian defenses. Ukraine is responding not by continuing its, its counteroffensive, which, which stalled out a couple mm -hmm. of months ago, but starting to shift to tactics of hitting uh, Russian targets. They just had a successful drone attack on a, an oil facility that was processing fuel for the Russian army outside St. Petersburg. 
a very long range. This is about Whoa. 700, 800 miles from Ukraine. They launch an attack that caused a massive fire there. They continue to, they, to try to develop tactics that can hurt the Russians where they live, not just the Russians that are occupying their territory. But all this requires ammunition, requires fuel, requires um, other resources. They are, Ukraine is now rationing its ammunition, rationing its artillery shells. This could get very dangerous in the coming months unless you get a new uh, installment of U.S. aid. Is it too much to say that without United States assistance, Vladimir Putin wins? No, I think that's accurate. Not right away, but it's hard to see how how Ukraine holds out um, if the U.S. abandons uh, Ukraine, either because the Republican-controlled Congress refuses to act, or, and this is the scenario that Zelensky fears the most, and he spoke about it, President Zelensky of Ukraine spoke about it just a couple of days ago. If Donald Trump is elected in November, he said it would be a disaster for Ukraine. Yeah, Trump has uh, made no doubts about the fact that any aid to Ukraine would cease uh, if he were, God forbid, reelected. Joe, we haven't talked about uh, North Korea, let's shift to the to the Far East, but North Korea has been making some, you know, dangerous moves, it seems, or scary moves lately, uh, including recently saying they no longer consider South Korea just a, another country, but now uh, a mortal enemy, uh, and that they threatened to wipe them out using nuclear power. Mm-hmm. Is this just Kim Jong-un, you know, playing Donald Trump and bragging or more serious? Well, I have to tell you, I thought so when I saw those remarks that South Korea was no longer a country filled with fellow countrymen, as he said, but a hostile state. I thought, well, this is the normal, you know, New Year rhetoric. But this New York Times article references a warning by two very well-respected, experienced Korean experts, Sig Hecker, the former director of Los Alamos, and Robert Carlin, who write in the blog 38 North, which I used to support when I was president of Plowshares. They say this, and if, if you're chilled by the war in Gaza, Think about this sentence for a second. The situation in the Korean peninsula is more dangerous than it has been at any time since June 1950. Ooh. June Ooh. 1950. That was yeah. the Korean War began. Yes. We, we believe, they say, that Kim Jong-un has made a strategic decision to go to war. Whoa. Okay. Wow. Full stop. Yeah. Let's start paying more attention to this. Their, their analysis is basically that Kim Jong-un has given up on the prospect of diplomatic engagement with the West, that they tried this for several decades under his father, then him. Um, they came close to something with Donald Trump, but the, the whole thing collapsed in, in 2019. The Biden administration has said they're willing to talk to North Korea, but doesn't really do anything about North Korea. And Kim Jong-un is convinced that this is not a path anymore. And he may see the current uh, U.S. preoccupation with the Middle East and with Ukraine and our own political divisions as an opportune moment to strike, not dissimilar from Hamas's logic on Israel. And they believe he's ramping up to make some kind of military move on South Korea. I don't know if they're right, but these people are much more expert on on the Korean politics than almost anybody I know. So we have to take their warning seriously. We have often thought of Kim Jong-un as this 
you know, kind of crazy character, but that making such a move would be suicidal in his part, right? That I've heard people say North Korea would end up being basically a parking lot where he just tried to start a nuclear war. Is he that crazy? I don't know. And that has been exactly my calculation. And, and that has been the U.S. calculation. That is, the U.S.-South Korea-Japan alliance has been, has been strong and has been growing stronger. And the belief has been that the way you deter Kim from doing this is to continue to make military moves that convince Kim that it would be suicidal. Hecker and Carlin warn against that logic. They say these moves make Kim think that he's an imminent danger of attack, that the U.S. Is, and South Korea and Japan are serious about deposing him and that he should strike first. So unless, uh, if, if I were in the U.S. government, I would take these warnings seriously. I would be ramping up engagement with North Korea or starting the procedures where one could possibly get diplomatic, again, uh, engagement with North Korea. Because the current strategy clearly isn't working. North Korea is getting stronger, not weaker, a bolder, not more cautious, despite all the U.S., Japanese, and South Korean moves. And then in that same area of the world, we have a new government in Taiwan. The last person that the mainland China wanted to see in charge of Taiwan is now the new president of Taiwan. Joe, for decades, we've had this sort of um, awkward, kept this awkward balance between Republic of China and Taiwan. Does this change anything? Any reason to be concerned about the new tension between the two? It has, ironically, it doesn't change anything because the new president, Lei Ching-te, is the current vice president of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party. So his election makes it another a third term for this party. First time that's happened in Taiwanese history. This is a, a, a centrist party, one that is more pro-Taiwan and very skeptical of dialogue with uh, with China. So in some senses, it continues the, the current position of the Taiwanese, Taiwanese government. There won't be any new dialogue with China. They haven't actually talked, Taiwan and China, since 2016. But it does increase pressure on uh, the Chinese president, uh, Xi Jinping, who who he, this was his least favorite candidate. Right, right. He, right. He wanted the Kuomintang, uh, the Nationalist Party uh, candidate to win, who was in favor of renewed dialogue, et cetera. It probably means you're going to see an increase in military spending, which has been moving up over the last few years. And when, on, on the bad side of this is that it, it increases the pressure on Xi to, to sort of make a move because he keeps talking about Taiwan being China's Taiwan and the need for reunification. So the Taiwan crisis, the, 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 the heat just went up a little bit. It's been simmering on the back. It may, it may go to a low boil. It has certainly consolidated its position as our next crisis. So certainly something to worry about. And meantime, what is the United States policy on Taiwan? It's sort of like our policy we were just talking about, about, about Korea. It's basically, you know, hold firm. That the way to deter uh, Xi, deter China from any moves, is to show the strength of the relationship. And how Joe Biden has historically kept talking about our alliance, our military commitment to Taiwan. We don't have a military commitment to Taiwan. They are not an ally. We are not committed to their defense by any treaty or security agreement, but the idea has been to, to 
try to show and convince Xi that any kind of attack on Taiwan would be devastating for China. That's been our policy, preserve Taiwan independence while we sort of work towards the bigger picture of of U.S.-China relationships and the hope that improvement in the bigger picture of U.S.-China relations can help to some kind of resolution on Taiwan. But it's more of a hope than a strategy. All right. So, Joe Sirancioni, let's wrap by bringing this back home. 2024, a presidential election here in the United States. It looks more and more certain that is going to be a replay of of, uh, 2020. It is Joe Biden, incumbent versus Donald Trump, former man clawing to get his way back in. How important is this to world policy? What do uh, the world leaders think about the possibility of a Trump redo? And um, how important is it to Joe Biden um, that his steady hand remain? We say that this is the most important election of our lifetime. It is also the most important global election in a year, 2024, when there are going to be 50 elections held in countries around the world. This is the big one. This is what everybody cares about. This is where, you know, you talk about an inflection point, which way the election goes could determine where global peace and security go for the for the, the rest of this decade at least. At the most recent global gathering, the World Economic Forum that gathered in the Swiss ski town of Davos, the, the leaders there were very worried. Everybody's coming back from that reporting about how the, the leaders of the other countries and institutions that came to Davos say that they expect Donald Trump to win. The size of his Iowa victory made a big impact on them. However imperfect that caucus process is, it impressed world leaders are paying attention to those frigid Mm. meetings in Iowa. They fear that Trump coming back into office will be a disaster, that a Trump presidency would mean the end of NATO. It would mean the end of cooperation. Bibi will stay put. Putin will grow stronger. Ukraine will be abandoned. That's the short list of people's Mm. concerns about what a Trump presidency means and why it is so important that this man never again get elected to the Oval Office. Uh, And do they have confidence in Joe Biden? No. I would say the the view is that the Biden administration looks weak. And, you know, it's, it's hard to believe that just three years ago, Biden triumphantly came to Davos and said, you know, America is back. Remember that? And things yeah. look good. And they have a good team. It's not the fault of any of any of the Jake Sullivan's a very good national security uh, advisor. Tony Blinken, I think, has been brilliant as secretary of state. But the problems they've been in is particularly the Gaza war. The Gaza war assumes a global importance because the U.S. looks weak in dealing with Israel, that it can't control a, 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 a tiny state that is completely dependent on U.S. aid and that it's, it's faltering over aid to Ukraine. That, and the divisions in the country are growing bigger, not smaller. All of this combines to shake global leaders' confidence in the United States. And I, I'm afraid that nothing's going to change that until, uh, until November. I mean, if Joe Biden can achieve another resounding victory over Trump, that will settle everybody down. In the meantime, once again, thank you, Bibi, right? <laughs> thank yeah. you, Bibi.
from nothing. Uh, Joe Sirincioni, thank you for a great look at the world as uh, hotspots today, even though uh, you scared us more than you reassured us, I would have to say, Joe. But that's the way things are, right? Yes. Call, that's, it, call it as it is. It's a rough world out there. All right. Joe Sirincioni, thanks again, my friend. And we will talk to you uh, again soon because these things are not going to resolve themselves overnight for sure. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Bill. And that's it for today's podcast with Joe Sirincione. Uh, a pretty, pretty chilling look at the state of affairs in the world today, but also, again, emphasizing the importance of making the right choice in November in our own presidential election. Well, we'll take uh, another look at the campaign trail as part of our roundtable on Friday. That's coming up next. We'll talk about what happened in New Hampshire, what we might expect in South Carolina, and is this, in effect, already over? Is Donald Trump the nominee for the Republican Party? Also, be taking a look at whether or not uh, members of the Senate and House can agree on a deal to continue funding for Ukraine and Israel as part of an immigration deal. And how about Donald Trump and how he has fared in the E. Jean Carroll case in New York? All of that good information and good ammunition, I should say, for the roundtable on Friday. That's coming up. So have a great week, everybody. Come back on Friday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod, our reporters roundtable.